title of my sermon today is Let's Make a Deal. And it was a really fun show. And it was an odd show, too, in that always throughout the show, Monty Hall would be calling people from the audience to see if they would want to kind of trade something for another. And oftentimes, there were three curtains, and but they would have something in their hand. He would give them something. Maybe he'd give them a few hundred dollars. And he'd say, you could trade this for what's behind the curtain. And in, in some cases, it might be something rather fantastic, like a new car. Or it might be a donkey. But there is a deal that goes down in Genesis 25 that is one of the, really, I think, one of the worst deals that you could ever imagine. Uh, you know, there have been deals on Let's Make a Deal where the person has had $10,000 like right there, right there in their hands, and they decide, you know what? Even though this is right here, I'm going to go and get, go with what's behind the curtain. And, and then suddenly to have that $10,000 disappear for what's behind the curtain. But on Let's Make a Deal, they didn't know what the potentiality was. But here as we read about Jacob and Esau, Esau does know. He's able to evaluate quite clearly what it is that he, he can have as his right and what it is that he could trade it for. And to be able to look at that and make a trade that is really such a, um, a shame. You know, it's a literal shame that we see here. But even as we get into this, I want to also keep in mind that there's a lot of, let's say, moral of a story going on here that, that we can see. We've got to be careful not just to always jump right to that. Because all of the scriptures, Jesus tells us, points us to him. And it, it is very easy throughout Genesis to continue to look at different stories and just jump into the person in the story and treat it as nothing more than an Aesop's fable and to look at the moral of the characters involved there. But if that's all that we do, then we would preach a sermon that would not be offensive to Greek or to Jew. Uh, anybody would just as likely like a tale like that. You could just as easily preach a sermon of don't be like Esau that would be just at home in a, in a, in a mosque or a synagogue. But it is the cross. It is the cross of Christ that is what makes us distinct. And it is Jesus that is the end game of everything that we read in our Bibles. We have to continually think that, even as we have our quiet times, as we study the Word, how is any of this really brought home by our understanding of our ultimate redemption in Jesus? How do stories even like this point to our need for a Savior? And then to appreciate that Savior all the more, perhaps when that story tweaks us in such a way as to realize... Oh boy, do I need a savior because I see so much of me in what it is that I've just read here. Uh, but, but for Israel, this would also be quite a awkward story because Israel is reading this, perhaps as they're getting ready to go into the promised land or perhaps as they're in anguish and despair in captivity in Babylon, looking for some sort of hope. And at one level, they would see great hope because they're going to see God's sovereign choice based on grace alone, that they are his chosen people. Nothing that they could do that's great, nothing that they could do that's awful, that actually changes that choice at all. God in love looks and says, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make you my special possession. And so that would be an encouragement to Israel as they read this story, realizing, wow, God from 
from very early on, has orchestrated intimately the fact that we are now the nation that we are. This is our origin story. But some origin stories are also rather embarrassing. And you look back into the family tree and there are some unsavory characters that are there. Even as we look at kind of the history of, of America as a, as a nation versus Israel looking at their genesis as a nation, we look at ours, you know, we've got some things in our past that we are like, oh, I guess we have to read this in the history books, but it's not so glorious, right? I mean, what the, the land grab that we had from, from Native Americans, uh, the 1830 Act that Andrew Jackson put into place, which was the Indian Relocation Program that took tens of thousands of, of Seminole and, and Cherokee and, 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 and uh, uh, others as well. I think the, uh, the, um, the, the tens of thousands that then went on the Trail of Tears and so many thousands of them died as they were relocated from Georgia to, to Oklahoma. Like we read all of that, we think, ah, yeah, probably not good, but, but we're America, right? And, and we, we tend to kind of put that aside. I would imagine that Israel would have a bit of a feeling of that as well. It's like, oh, isn't that cool that, you know, manifest destiny, that God had us in mind, but uh, we don't really start out in the most wonderful way. So probably nothing for us to kind of feel great about in and of our flesh. But otherwise, yes, amazing to feel great about because obviously God is the one that has so clearly chosen us and bestowed his love upon us. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the story of Jacob and Esau. Verse 19. This is the account. <coughs> and if you remember early on as we were going through, it's amazing how few words I can read and we go off for a while. Uh, <laughs> But, but early on, I kept mentioning that we will be seeing again and again throughout the book of Genesis because it's organized around generations or family accounts. The word, this is the account, is what the NIV chooses to use here. Other translations might say these are the generations of. The, the word is generations. It's the word toldat. And in Hebrew, toldat is the, the family lineage. So this is now the family lineage, the generations of the line from, from uh, Abraham's son, Isaac. So this is Isaac's Toldot. Now, you probably also maybe noticed, if you've been paying attention, that I haven't mentioned Toldot in may maybe a few months now because it hasn't been mentioned in all of these chapters of Genesis. And <coughs> the reason being is that it never mentions the Toldot of Abraham, only of Abraham's father, but not of Abraham himself. And the Toldot of Abraham would then be Isaac. But we know that Isaac doesn't actually get a whole lot of attention in the scriptures because most of Genesis is organized around Abraham, Jacob, and then Joseph. And, and now we're making that connection back into Jacob from Abraham, Jacob, who does become Israel. Jacob will be renamed Israel. So with that in mind, let's read. I'll cough and then we'll read. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the Toldot of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, Aramean from Badam Aram, and the sister of Laban the Aramean. So keep that in mind, 40 years old, because we'll, we'll see how old these boys are based on the ages that are given here. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Bible doesn't go into the long tension 
that we had between Abraham and Sarah, <coughs> sorry, before Isaac is born, but it seems as though that there was at least a, a shortened period of time where they did despair of the fact that, uh, that uh, Rebecca was not being able to conceive and have a child. But it's a beautiful small picture here of Isaac, thanks, of, of Isaac praying on behalf of his wife. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? Apparently it was a rather profound jostling that was going on. Not perhaps just the, the regular, oh, the baby's kicking, isn't that cute? Uh, she doesn't say, oh, feel, please, isn't this cute? Now there's something much more momentous going on because there are nations at stake inside of, of, of her womb and all that is going on here. Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. That's a lot. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. That's an upsetting of the apple cart for Rebecca to hear this. She probably then realizes something very difficult and awkward will obviously be happening in my family if the whole idea of primogeniture, the idea of the firstborn, and all that it is that he is given is going to be somehow turned upside down and inside out. She knows, based on, on um, chapter 25, verse 5, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. That the firstborn, rather than having a, a dilution of the power and the property, of the previous generation, the firstborn is given a, a great preponderance of all of that property. Why? So it isn't kind of spread out, but, but still remains concentrated that now somehow or another, the first son is now going to get short shrift in some way or another. And I'm sure in her mind, she thinks that's a very ominous thing that has just been said. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Goony Goo Goo. No, Esau. <laughs> She's a Bigfoot, Gus. I mean, I mean that, that, that's what you... I mean, come on. Some of you all are, are hairy now, right? But, and, and that's okay. But if you were that hairy and red at birth, I don't think we would be like, oh, right? I mean, it's just not a normal idea to, to be able to see this. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. So, so literally, right on his heels came Jacob, as if he's you know, racing after his brother. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So how old were the boys? Anybody can do the math? Zero. Exactly. Good job. <laughs> um, but, but it was 20 years of praying for, for this birth. Uh, and, and while we're, we're spared all of those details, know, know that Isaac was a spiritual man who continued in prayer uh, throughout this time. Now, as, as we move on, 
the, the idea of hand grasping at the heel. Every Hebrew name has rather, is rather pregnant with meaning. And, and, and this is no exception here, that Jacob doesn't just simply mean grasping at the heel, but it also has a pejorative edge to it with this idea that he is a conniver. Uh, he's a schemer and scheming with the edge of deceit, using lies to get what you want. So Jake, yeah, amen, is a good biblical name, but nonetheless, it is a, a name that goes back to this original idea of, of Jacob in some way kind of scheming after what it is that Esau does have. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And every dad who's looking to kind of raise up a boy that's going to be kind of a, a man's man, you always bum out at this story. Because, of course, Jacob ends up being God's special privileged son and the chosen one, goes on to glory. And Esau, of course, then has basically a, a fall from grace that goes on here. But you wish it were the other way around or you wish kind of their dispositions that, you know, the, the, the boy that, you know, went out hunting and fishing and, you know, and ended up kind of throwing rocks and killing things and eating them and just you know, getting after it. Like, like that was the boy that we would love to be able to lift up. But of course, that's the boy that actually goes down a path that we don't actually want to uh, promote so much. But hey, so that, that's the way that we've got it. It just shows again and again that the classic casting of heroes from Hollywood always seems to go the other way with God. And that the kingdom of God really does flip everything upside down. And that the hero of this story ends up being a boy who likes to kind of hang out in the kitchen with mama throughout this, this narrative. And not, not, not that, you know, that, that's something that we, we, we disparage, but nonetheless, the, there's also a, a real element to really being a, a, a man that, that we have in mind here of, of what it, even, even the biblical definitions of manliness do seem to run counter to how we're describing our hero right now in Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he's called Edom. Edom means red. Esau means hairy, by the way. So, I mean, you just, you just see him kind of bowling the china shop, busting into the home, into the kitchen, and no greetings, no nothing. It's just like, ooh, look, food, give me, eat, right? It's just, you know, kind of good caveman, impulsive mentality, no frontal lobe activity going on whatsoever, limbic system firing, that's all. Give, eat, now, me, famished, can't say too many syllables, but nonetheless, Jacob replied, and it seems as though Jacob, like the whole, you know, as, as full of emotion and impulse as Esau is, just kind of tearing into the kitchen, everything going at a million miles an hour, it seems as though Jacob is like waiting, drumming his fingers, calculating, cool, collected. And as he hears all of this, aha, first, sell me your, wait for it, birthright. Right? And, and, and now the great tension 
is, is brought to bear. Sell me your birthright. All right. This is a mess of stew. That's just how they call it in, in London. Again, I have a British daughter-in-law. I can use Britishisms. Okay. I, I give that authority to myself now <laughs> by virtue of that. But, but a mess of porridge, a mess of stew. He's, he's going to trade this little mess for what would have been one of the grandest estates at that time on earth. Abraham was roundly considered to be one of the most affluent men on earth. And again, 25 verse 5 tells us, how much did Isaac get from Abraham? All of it. So now Isaac is that. And Isaac's wealth is only going to increase as we make our way through the next chapter. So this birthright is basically all that you're going to get as the firstborn son. In some cases, it's, a, it's double what anybody else gets. But in, in other cases, it could just simply be everything like it was with Isaac, depending on what it is that the father wanted to do to be able to continue to concentrate the influence and resources that he had. All right. So just to, to kind of keep this in mind. Let's, let's say we're back and let's make a deal. I'll get back to the text in one minute here. Right? And, and, and you've, got, you've got two choices here, right? Monty Hall calls you down. Come on down. And he says, look what I will give you. I will give you this bowl of steel-cut oatmeal with, with honey and walnuts from the happiest place on earth, McDonald's. You could have this, or you could have what's behind the curtain. Now, I'm not telling you what's behind the curtain, but you could have this with a spoon, sanitized for your protection. With, right? You could have this, or what's behind the curtain. And now, even you, not knowing, would probably think, if you're on, let, let me go with what's behind the curtain. And what's behind the curtain... As you get the full estate, oceanfront property, manor house, all that goes with it, all of the, uh, of the equity and all of the funds that, that they keep that house run, all of that is yours. Okay, so here's the choice. Would you like this? Or would you like that? Let's make a deal. Now, it's absurd, right? Who, who of you... Would, would not want to kind of live right on the bay in Virginia Beach, have deep water access, be able to have this home, have it already financially independent and funded with the servants and everything for, for, for all of time. Or would you rather have a mess of porridge? Would you rather have a little bit of red stew in, instead of those two things? It's ridiculous, right? It almost seems like this story doesn't even make any sense. Are you sure, God? Are you sure it really went down this way? It's just so bizarre. I can't imagine anybody wanting to be able to make this trade that, that could possibly ever think of it in his right mind. But nonetheless, it goes down that way. So, so, so keep this in mind. We'll, we'll keep reading. Look, I'm about to die. So Jacob replies, first, sell me your birthright. What's the price? It's for this. <laughs> Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? It's, it's not helpful, by the way, when you're making decisions emotionally and then you become self-focused emotionally and then you become a drama queen. On top of that, I'm about to die! What do I care? 
on my last breath, I hope I can at least swallow a little bit of that stew. Oh, my life is so hard. But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. But by the way, Jacob is no hero at this moment. We, we know biblically that if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Proverbs 25 makes that profoundly clear. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. Apparently threw in bread for free. Wow. <laughs> he ate and drank, got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. Those were sour grapes anyway. Right? The idea of despised is also to depreciate, is a good way of putting it. To undervalue what really was really meant to be his in the, the great scheme of, of, uh, of the family. And as we take a look at this, I want to look at, at two main points today. The first is simply this sad phrase at the end. He ate, got up, and left. What he did, rather than contemplate what it is that he had to do, and, and there were a little bit of tripwires there along the way. right? I mean, Jacob even made him slow down and swear. I mean, you think once you slow down that much, it's not as though he just rushed in, Ah, I ate it. Aha! There's a clause underneath that bowl that if you rush in and eat it, I get all of the estate and you get nothing. Right? It doesn't work that way. He even is caused to slow down and have to consider, all right, am I ready to really make this kind of an oath? To make this... Um, have you ever heard of uh, the Faustian bargain? Anybody ever hear of Faust? Goethe wrote, wrote he's a German uh, who wrote it uh, right, right around the late 1700s. It was published in 1808. And it's a story of a man named Faust, who was a great scholar in Germany. But all of his great learning still left him frustrated. And there was more that he wanted, more that he wanted. He was always striving after more. And then suddenly this demon arrives in the form of a dog that follows him home, pops into Mephistopheles, and he makes a deal with him. And he says, you know what? I will give you basically anything that you could, you could want. But guess what I get? Your soul. Yeah, I get your soul. It's kind of like a devil went down to Georgia, you know. I'll, I'll give you this fiddle made of gold if you give me your soul. You probably remember that a little bit better than that. Than but, but you know what's interesting is that whole story and this whole story is all about whether we are going to run after immediate gratification or whether we are going to delay immediate gratification for the greater long-term gain that will come our way. Esau decided to go after the immediate gratification. He ate. He ate and he drank and he got up and he left. It's as simple as that. Verb, 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 verb in, in the Hebrew. Ate, drank, upped and left. And no consideration of the trade-off that he was making then and there. And it is a cautionary tale for us. It's, it's one that's been studied quite a bit. It's one of the more popular studies in popular psychology uh, since the 1950s. Uh, during during kind of this, this last 
uh, really since the 1960s. Since, since that time, there's been a study called the Marshmallow Test, shorthand, conducted at Stanford. The Stanford uh, Psychology Department, many of their, their children actually were in the same daycare. And they decided to use some of those children for a test. Of, of immediate gratification versus delayed gratification and to see what a kid does and what strategies he uses to try to say no to the immediate short-term gain to get a much greater long-term gain, in this case double. So although they used cookies and brownies and other things, the, the popular notion was they used a, a, a marshmallow. And they bring in a three, four-year-old, sit him down in a chair, on a table, there behind uh, one-way glass, looking at the child, observing, and they put a marshmallow there. And they say, if you can wait five minutes, and not eat this marshmallow, I'm gonna give you two. Or if you can wait five minutes, instead of eating this cookie, I'll give you two cookies. Yep. And in, in some kids, you know, they, they kind of white knuckled it and they you know, touched the plate, looked around, smelled it, did everything. But they tried every strategy they could and some ate the marshmallow, but some waited. Right. And they got the second marshmallow and learned the value of delayed gratification. Yeah. Learned the value of what Hebrews says when it says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. What children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, everyone undergoes discipline. You're not legitimate. You're not true sons or daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had fathers who have disciplined us. And in this case, discipline is the word train. And what is that you're being trained for? You're being trained to be able to say no to immediate gratification, to the impulsive temptation, so that you can gain a greater future. We've all had fathers who have trained us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They, our, our earthly fathers, trained us for a little while as they thought best so that we can make these good choices. But God trains us for our good in order that we, what's the great good there? Share in His holiness. No training, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. That's the short term. But painful. Later on, long term, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Long term, later on, delayed gratification, a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So the Bible speaks clearly to this. Let me just jump back for one more moment, though, on the marshmallow test. So after they saw all of the different strategies, something came about that they didn't expect. As their kids began to get older, they began to ask them, hey, how's your friend that you used to go to preschool with? And they would hear these uh, different uh, stories, and it was uh, sure just you know incidental evidence along the way. But uh, Walter Mischel, who was one of the main researchers and also the author of the book, The Marshmallow Test, began to notice that, hey, wait a minute, I remember that name. That was the name of one of the kids that was able to say no to the marshmallow. And, and he's what? Med school? She's, she, she, she's done what? She's, she, she's a physics professor? It suddenly realized that the kids who said no ended up having much greater achievements. Then they began to track it in earnest, and suddenly thousands of longitudinal test subjects were brought into bear. A longitudinal test is where they take you from three and study you onto 40, 50, uh, in, in this case, 50 years later now, people have been studied in this test. 
And here's what's remarkable as they've studied all of these people. They have tried to do regression analysis or to see what factors might have been the most contributing factors to why some kids were successful and other kids were not. And what they found was it didn't matter what race you were. It didn't matter what income level you were. You, you could test for all of those, any, any factor you want, and it ended up being negligible in comparison to one main thing. Did you eat the marshmallow or did you wait for the second one? That one thing completely changed the trajectory of the lives of those kids. And the ones that were able to wait for that second marshmallow, they, uh, the, the, the results are, are really phenomenal in, in terms of high school graduation rates, college graduation rates, income, average income that they earn, uh, the stability of their marriages, you, the, the, the ability to, to not be addicted to drugs, but the ones who ate the marshmallow, to, to see all of the, uh, the, the divorce rates, the, the uh, teen pregnancies that resulted, the um, recidivism rates with, with prison that resulted, the drug addictions that resulted, m massively different between those who are able to delay immediate gratification. And if, if, if for us as, as parents, if there's one thing that we could really, I think, help our kids with and help ourselves with, and here's the beautiful part about all of the studies is, this is not all pre-wired. That all of this is very able to be trained as Hebrews 12 tells us. That God trains us. Our fathers, yeah, for a little while train us for our own good, but when God gets a hold of us, He then begins to train us for an even greater good. And for those who accept the training and are trained by God, there is a harvest of righteousness and peace and holiness that all comes our way. And so we need to really take heed of not being the one who eats, drinks, gets up and goes. Yeah, that, that may have a, a momentary blip, but my goodness, long term, what a, what a horrible, horrible trade-off that that really does become. At Debbie's medical practice, Debbie's a doctor, and she works in an urgent care center up on the peninsula. And when certain patients come in, the, the people that kind of triage what's, what's going on with the patients will give Debbie some notes on the chart as it comes back. And one of the common notes that she gets so that she understands what kind of person she's dealing with is the note that says, smoker's personality. And, and when, when she gets smoker's personality on the chart, what all of the staff is trying to tell her is, this is a person who seems to be very impulsive. Uh, th this is a person, yeah, he, he, he or she may be rather gregarious, but there's a, an immaturity to, to all of that. And the idea to be able to say no to immediate gratification may actually be a difficulty as you're trying to determine course of treatment for this person. Will they be able to have the discipline to be able to deny themselves short term so that greater health can result long term? And, and of course, the reason they call it smoker's personality is that when you're faced with some sort of an obstacle in your life, whether it be boredom or whether it be some sort of a pain or whether it be some desire to escape, it's much more difficult to, to work through that pain and come out at the other end a much more whole human being. A person that is deeper and more empathetic. A person that has steel in the spine of their soul rather than a person who can just so quickly just flit over to just kind of taking the drag and trying to get the immediate gratification that, that such a kind of a, a stimulus or a self-medication would be able to bring your way. Uh, this is the Esau personality, not just the smoker personality. This is what Esau has done here right before our eyes on Scripture. 
And, and as we look at this, it's a cautionary tale that, that, that yes, it's a moral tale, but it's God's morality that he's putting on, on display here and one that he wants to get through to us because he wants us to be trained to not waste the pain, to not waste the strength of, of denial in the short term, to do delay immediate gratification, knowing that much greater blessings and benefits and righteousness and peace and, and holiness are what is in store for every one of us when we make the greater choice for the long term rather than the myopic, the, the, the short vision, short term that um, Esau goes after right here. So as, as we think about this, I think we've got to really consider what are the bowls of porridge? What are the little bowls of stew that we choose when we could have the, the estate? You know what it is that, that God has in store for you. It's a harvest of wonder. It's a beauty. And yet, to choose sexual immorality rather than to wait and court and marry the way that God does, it's a massive trade-off. That, that, that short-term moment of an endorphin rush that someone found you attractive or alluring or affirmed you in some way, that fleeting mist of a bowl of porridge that you just got there from that person when in fact, this is what God is always wanting you to have. It's not God's will for you to waste it on a paramour, a, a, a little fleshly indulgence, when what God has in store for you is bliss and delight beyond what you could imagine. To, to again and again look at maybe the trajectory of your life and to think, wow, maybe, maybe God is, is really wanting me to get serious about being trained by him so that I do not fall so quickly to these short-term immediate gratifications. Maybe it's the idea that you, you, you skip out on, on college just as you're making your way through, and you, you know the, the greater gain that would result if you could really deny yourself and finish out that degree. And what would come from that? Is it going to be painful? Yes. Is it going to be denying yourself again and again? Yes, it will. But every moment that you decide to take that, Every moment, your character is being shaped by God. If you're doing it for godly reasons, not just for your, your own uh, self-actualization. But if you're really doing it so that you can better serve the Lord, every moment of self-denial is God then shaping you as a loving father. And not only that, but then giving you a greater future. Maybe it is some sort of a drug use that keeps kind of coming back into your life. Some way of numbing some sort of pain or disappointment that may have come into your life. And, and if, if, if that's the case, then my goodness, the, the pain associated with having that removed, yes, it will be rather severe, but that pain is only going to deepen your roots of strength of what it is that God has always meant for you to be. And if, if right now you... you are not in the Lord. If right now you don't even value your birthright, if right now you don't even marvel at your birthright, the chances are that, that perhaps as you keep making the choice of this instead of that, 
that, that maybe you don't know the Lord. Maybe you think you do, but, but, but if your life keeps showing that you don't know the Lord, maybe it's time to really sit down and look scripturally with humility. And it's more painful to do that, by the way. It's a lot easier to say, I'll just kind of figure it out on myself. Why? Because there's less pain involved in that. But to, to really allow the pain of humility, the pain of exposure, to do that in community only enhances all of that. But you know what else it enhances? It enhances the harvest that's going to come at the end. This is no time to choose the path of least resistance. No time to choose the, the, um, the path of least pain for immediate gratification. It's the time to really be able to choose the greater good, the greater end that God has prepared for you. Whatever the kind of the, the cycle of your life is, you know, perhaps it is that you just blow up in anger with, with, with family rather than being able to settle in and see the greater gain that God will bring about. Yeah, sure, if I'm harsh with my kids, they get in a line pretty quickly, but at what cost? And at what long-term difference of really the beauty and the peace and the righteousness of our family versus my, my short-term gain that, that I had in that moment of just going after the impulse, the impetuousness of gaining those things. Uh, in our marriages, likewise, as those dynamics can play themselves out, sure, there, there may be some kind of immediate pleasure of just you know, either being harsh or critical or spurting out whatever it is that is, is ready to just go fly. But my goodness, to be able to think about what is it that is going to bring about the greatest long-term glory for the sake of Jesus, to, to really be great representation of, of Jesus in our, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our careers, all of these areas. But, but my goodness, most especially, what's, what's one of the, the greatest ones is just temptations, Temptations that come into our lives to choose a pornographic image instead of the glory that God really wants for you. Never mind the, the, the relationship that God really would want for you. Even if that doesn't come, that's fine. You, you have intimacy with Christ. And to, to be know that you have through and through really been honoring to what it is that God has in store for your relationship with him. But again, to, to choose the immediate gratification of the flesh and all of its different permutations is to not take heed to this cautionary tale. But if all this tale has in store for us is to say, don't be like Esau, well then, we could preach this anywhere, as I mentioned earlier. But there's a bigger reason why I can preach all of this. There's a bigger reason why I can have confidence before you to say, don't be like Esau, to, to delay the immediate gratification, to look towards what is really in store for you. And the reason is because there was another firstborn son. And instead of eating, drinking, getting up and leaving, Matthew 4 tells us what happens to him when he's famished. He's not just famished from a hard day of hunting. He's famished from praying. For you and fasting for you for 40 days. He ate and drank nothing. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 4, in a bit, in an understated way, he was hungry. Esau, of course, is, I'm famished! I'm famished, I'm gonna die! All of that leads to everybody else running around you to encourage you to go ahead and do the short-term gain. Everybody then caters to your short-term demands because diva mode seems to work. 
But Jesus understated and he was hungry. And guess what Satan comes now with the Faustian bargain? The, 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 the bargain is, bow down and worship me. And let's have some bread. Let's turn these stones into bread. There's a variety of other temptations, of course, in that, that uh, triple temptation that he has there. But Jesus did not eat. He did not eat. And instead of the Bible then saying, and he got up and left, as it says of Esau, you know what Matthew 4 ends with? It says, and Satan had to get up and leave. And the reason that we can have the strength of character to not choose this, but to choose what it is that God has in store, is because we are in that firstborn son. Romans 8 tells us that we are now brothers and sisters, confirmed, locked in by the plan of God to that firstborn. And that as we are now in the firstborn, all of the benefits that are conferred upon the firstborn, they're yours. That's your inheritance. That estate, that's chump change. That, that estate ain't nothing compared to what is your inheritance. But you know, the temptations just didn't end with bread for Jesus. The immediate gratification didn't just end there. Because Satan then said he would leave him at this moment and wait for an opportune time. It's a kairos moment, to use the original language. A, a, a moment especially pregnant with effectiveness to be able to tempt Jesus another time. And when does that come? Seems as though it comes while he's hanging on the cross with our sins. As he is choosing delayed gratification for our greater good, not even for his own, for the greater good of us. Jesus' delayed gratification is you and your glory. But while he hung on that cross, there was temptations hurled his way of immediate gratification. What were they? Well, Matthew records that as well. Hey, Jesus, why don't you come down from the cross? That way we'll all know that you really are the Son of God, that you really are the Messiah. And if you do that, then we'll all believe in you. Let's just do it the quick way. Just kind of Superman your way out of this thing, Jesus. And we'll all bow down and recognize who you are. Jesus recognized that that's not the fix that we need. Yeah, that may have helped immediately with a few people right then and there. But he knew that there's a whole group of people as you, as you sit here right now that need something more. Cal needs it. Sarah needs it. Elaine needs it. George needs it. And Jesus chose you. You are his delayed gratification. And he bore the pain. He forsook the immediate gratification. Why? Because you are his delayed gratification. And in him choosing you, you now have the birthright. Amen. He didn't just want you as his delayed gratification. He wanted you to have the birthright of the firstborn. To have that inheritance. An inheritance that could never perish, spoil, or fade. Let me, let me jump past. First Peter says, 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, whoops. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It goes on to say, I'll read the next two verses, it's not up there. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Do you? This is your inheritance. This is why he delayed his gratification. This is what you get. It's all yours. It's already guaranteed. And it's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's yours. You don't have to wonder, is it coming my way or not? How's the will going to read? It's a big, beautiful estate. Will I get it? Will it be somebody else? You get it. You get it all. And it's greater than you could ever imagine. It's behind the curtain, but yet it is still busting through the curtain already so that you can already get to know it. And these have all come despite you having to suffer grief in various kinds of trials. Why the trials? The trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, so that the training of your faith by God may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Brothers and sisters, it's time for us to reassess our birthright. It's time for us to live as people that have treasures beyond imagination that are waiting for us for all of eternity. It's time to choose what we want most rather than what we want now. It's time to live our lives for ourselves as Jesus did and for others so that everyone could know what it is that God has always instilled in them of what it is that they should want most. This is the birthright to which we have been reborn. This is the birthright to which all need to be reborn. If we continue to keep the gospel message before us, my goodness, what keeps us from running after it, running through the pain, running through the trials, to continue in this great path of being refined by a loving hand of God, knowing that at the other end of it is immense and wonderful bliss that is all waiting for us. As a simple closing charge, it's time to have a reassessment. A reassessment of your property. You know, when that comes in Virginia Beach, we always brace ourselves. Your property assessment is before you now. Reassess the value of your birthright in Christ. You do that deeply and the implications will be inescapable and the glory that you bring to Christ will be wonderful. Thank you.